Thank you. My name is Wanda and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Welcome to all of you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking me to share my experience with you. The person you're standing here is not the person that came into these doors. I was much different and uh, much younger. Um, I'm just going to start with my story. I'm going to hit the high spots and move on into my recovery. Um, I started drinking and other things at a very early age, like I'm sure most everybody in this room has. I uh, first time I got a taste of alcohol, and I thought, "This is it. This is. I feel better now. <laughs> I feel much better now." And I continued that all through my uh, young adult years. I uh, drank a lot during high school, and I went to high school in the early 70s. So in the early 70s, we did lots of things besides just drinking. For purposes of qualifying myself and sharing my story, I also did a lot of drugs with my alcohol use. And oftentimes, I did it so I could drink more. And I did, much more. And uh, I uh, started feeling like there was something wrong with me. I couldn't quite put my finger on what was wrong with me, but I was pretty certain there was something not right. And uh, I started getting in trouble. And I started spending my lunch money for wine and cigarettes. And I started missing a lot of school. Well, back then, they had this uh, slick idea that uh, you could be responsible for your own absences. You just had to sign your name. Your parents didn't have to know anything about it until you got, I don't know, 15 or 20 or something like that, anything. So <clears throat> I maxed out. And uh, I didn't see anything wrong with that. And I made it to my senior year of high school. Well, we went on a field trip to Shipshawana, Indiana, to the open Amish Air Flea Mart. And uh, I'm from Michigan. And when we went down there, I thought that I would not have any fun during this field trip if I did not have some help. So, I joined myself up a little bit of help so I could feel a little better and went down there and made an ass of myself. And uh, there was nothing they could do with me because the school was in Michigan and we were in Indiana and they were stuck with me. They didn't like that. <laughs> the teacher did not like that. The principal did not like that. So they said, okay, we're dropping you a half a credit here. I said, well, yeah, but... Uh, I need that credit. I need that credit to graduate. My dad and my mom are expecting me to graduate. I was, sorry, sorry, Wanda. You don't have it. You're not doing it. Okay, so, like always, I think I can figure this out. There's got to be another avenue. I can always think of another avenue. Always have an ace in the hole. Whatever. So, I go to the dean and I say, Okay, come on, this is a deal. My dad wants me to graduate really bad. 
I go, why don't you just let me walk through the ceremony? You don't have to give me anything. Just let me walk through it, okay? So my mom and dad can see me walk through this thing. The dean said, Wanda, we don't want you in our ceremony. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, why not? Because you're an ass. That's why. We don't want you here. So I thought, well, you know, screw you. I didn't want to do it anyway. That's a lot. I did want to do it. But I told myself I didn't. You know, what, what do I need that for? I don't need that for anything. But, oh, you know, my dad would be disappointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I decide, well, they're mag- i got to figure this out. How, how can I redeem myself here? So I ended up going to summer school and getting that stupid half a credit and getting the diploma in the mail. Okay? I got it. Yeah. But I never forgot that Dean looking me in the eye and saying, we don't want you in our ceremony. And I couldn't figure that out. I'm a nice person. Why would you not want me in your ceremony? So what if I messed around on a field trip? So what if I drank on the campus? So what if I smoked in the bathroom? So what if I cut school? So what if I was mean to my fellow students? So what? Isn't that what everybody did? Did everybody do that? No, everybody didn't do that. (laughs) I thought they did. They didn't. So I got through there and moved on with my glorious life. And uh, I got a a job here, a job there. And... um, the best job I got, I think, probably was when I worked at, uh, called, uh, Stop and Go. It's like 7-Eleven, on least in Michigan. So I got this job at Stop and Go, and, uh, I'm a liar, cheat, and thief. So, I was taking stuff from Stop and Go. But I figured I deserved it because they didn't pay me the very, they paid me like minimum wage or something. And I knew I was worth more than that. They weren't paying me, so, I figured I should get some more. Well, I didn't see anything wrong with that either. And the thing that kept me uh, going at that job was I would drink, um, I would put wine in the Chili Willy cup. You know, the Swerfy cup, what was called Chili Willy. And so I would put wine in the Chili Willy cup so I could get through the shift, you know. And I didn't see nothing wrong with that. I didn't see anything wrong with that. But there was something wrong with it. I didn't see it yet. And uh, so I did some more criminal activity things, some kind of serious ones. But anyway, I kept going. I kept moving on. And uh, I kept uh, getting worse and worse. So I started hanging out with, you know, some badasses. I started hanging out with those bad people because, you know, that's where I fit in. That's where I felt good. That's where I felt comfortable because... I was one of them. That's how I felt. So I started um, living my life at the bar at night and uh, other stuff. And uh, I decided that uh, life was not very exciting in Kalamazoo, Michigan anymore. So I hooked up with uh, this guy because I was always hooking up with some guy. And uh, we went to Detroit. And uh, we hit the streets of Detroit because it must be more exciting there than it is in Kalamazoo. Well, oh, it was more exciting. It was much more exciting. 
Well, I stayed over there in Detroit doing other uh, illegal activities and uh, thinking that I was invincible for some reason. And, uh, well, one night the police decided that I was not invincible. In fact, uh, they uh, hauled my ass off to jail over there in Detroit. And uh, I was kind of scared. That's the first time I had gone to jail. I've been all kinds of trouble, but I had never gone to jail. So this time I had to go to jail. So I get down there to the jail, and of course I'm tough, you know. So I said, they are going to see me sweat, by God. So I'm thinking, man, how am I going to get out of this? I don't really think I did anything that wrong. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure of it. So anyway, they don't really care. I'm sure you guys know that already, too. They don't care. So, I'm in Detroit, in jail, and my dad comes to see me. And he comes in that little cubicle there with the glass, and he looks in there, and he says, uh, well, uh, Wanda, I said, don't worry, Dad, they don't got nothing on me. He goes, Wanda, I talked to them, and I'm pretty sure they do. And I'm thinking, well, whose side are you on anyway? So my dad says to me, he says, well, listen, I'm not mortgaging my home to get you out of jail. But here, I'll give you $20 so you can buy some cigarettes, okay? And I'll see you at the arraignment. Okay, fine. I didn't like it, and I really didn't like it. <laughs> and I was, uh, I was pretty young, but there I was. Anyway, I uh, got to the arraignment and all that garbage, and uh, I had been charged with uh, breaking and entering an automobile, fleeing and eluding a police officer. I was not fleeing and eluding. All I did was turn right and try to get away, and I ended up in the ditch. It is not my fault, but they didn't see it that way. I was fleeing and eluding, and I was driving on a suspended driver's license. So the judge explained to me that... Um, I had forgotten how to drive, and so I didn't need a driver's license because I didn't need to be driving because I had forgotten how to drive. Well, I didn't buy that either. I thought, yeah, okay, dude, I'm not going there. I'm fine. So I kind of got out of that mess a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. Got out of that mess a little bit, and uh, I uh, had a habit of going to the emergency room. And I don't know if any of you guys have been there, but I went there quite a few times for various reasons. Sometimes it was from uh, maybe an accident. Sometimes it was because I had overindulged one more time, and uh, somebody hauled me over there. There are many reasons. But anyway, I frequented the OER. And when I would leave, I would take more with me than I came with, sometimes legitimately, sometimes not. But I didn't see anything wrong with that. So this one particular time from after jail, I went to uh, the emergency room. And uh, I remember coming to and I was puking my guts out because they gave me that crap that makes you puke. So I was puking my guts out and I come to it and I'm looking around and there's these cops are coming at me in the emergency room. And I said, okay, 
I want to know who the hell called those people. And they're looking at me. I'm indignant. I'm puking. Black stuff's running out of my mouth. I'm laying up on a gurney. And I want to know who called those police. What are you, what are you people thinking? And so the policeman very kindly said to me, and I know some of you have heard my story, he comes over and he says, uh, well, this is the deal, young lady. You can either come with us peacefully or we will just pick you up and haul your ass out of here. I said, okay, I'll come. But I'm not doing anything anyway. I'll come. So they put me in the little car, and they took me to the Kalamazoo State Mental Institution and uh, put me up in there. So I went up in the mental institution there, and uh, I really couldn't figure that out. I thought, I'm a nice young girl here. I'm not that old. What am I doing in a mental institution? I am not mentally ill. Why am I in a mental institution? Well, I couldn't quite figure it out to start with because I was uh, a little under the weather. And um, the first night I was there, they uh, came to me with the medicine cart. They had the medicine in the little, you know, the little paper cup with the medicine in it. And here they come. And they said, uh, here's your medication. And I was like, I looked in the little cup and I said, uh, I don't want that medication. Do you people not read your reports around here? Do you know, did anybody in here have any idea why I'm here? Do you know why I'm here? I don't want that medicine. You need to read your report and see why I'm here. Well, that was the first thought that entered my mind that there might be something wrong with me. There might be something wrong. Well, the next day, I was feeling a little better. And uh, the little pill lady came with a little card and a little paper cup. And she came with, I said, we, excuse me, excuse me, nurse, I'm ready for that medication now. I think I need it today. So, I got the medication. So I look around and I think, what in the God's name am I going to do in here? So I think to myself, because I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm of a, above intelligence, that's what I think. So I say, well, you know what? I start talking to people and I think, how am I going to get out of here? What do you do to get out of here? And some of the people said, well, you've got to wait until they think you're well enough to go. Or you could sign yourself in. I was like, you can sign yourself in? That's what I'm doing. I'm signing in. Because if I can sign in, I can sign out. So I go down to the nurse's station. I said, excuse me, excuse me. I really need help. Can I please sign in? Sure. Have at it. So I sign in, and here comes my dad and my sister. My mom couldn't bring herself to come to the mental institution to see her firstborn child. She couldn't do it. So my dad comes up there and he brings me candy bars and Slim Jims and says, hang in there. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I've been, uh, been hanging out with this guy, and this guy from Detroit. And uh, he came up there to see me. 
Well, the problem was uh, he stole some money out of his nurse's purse, and he wouldn't let him come back anymore. So, of course, my heart was broken. Because <laughs> 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 my teeth boyfriend couldn't come back in and see me. So, I waited the allotted amount of time, and uh, I went and said, told the old psychiatrist guy, uh, this is how I think. you, you got to know how I think, and I'm sure that probably some of you think the same way. It, during my rest, my uh, little resting period there in the mental institution, I was very observant of these people, making sure I was not like those people that were bouncing on the bed, talking to themselves, not touching anything. I was not quite there yet. So I watched, and I listened, and I waited. And... There was this, um, I don't know if he was a therapist or a doctor. He was some kind of an aide down there. And the mental patients, when they'd use the payphone, they would leave their change in the little change field, you know, and the little metal change field where you stick your finger in and pull the change out. They'd forget their change in there. And uh, this guy that worked there, every time he walked on the hall and walked by the scene, he'd stick his finger in there and he'd take the change out. And I thought, oh, you bastards, these people are metal, and you're stealing their money. What is wrong with you? Yeah, that's what I got to worry about. So I thought, well, I'm just going to show this guy. Let's see what he does with this. So I went and got hand lotion, and I squirted that thing called hand lotion. Then I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and here he comes, down the hall. Sticks his little finger in that little coin return. Pulls it out, goes like this, and just keeps on walking. <laughs> and I just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. Okay, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> there's something wrong with me. I'm starting to think there might be something amiss here. So I decided I needed to get out of there because that wasn't what was wrong with me. I didn't know what was wrong with me. That was not it. So I went and uh, it had a, this was another brilliant move. They had the buzzer so that when the buzzer went, the uh, therapist or doctor's door would open, but then when it shut, it locked so the mental patients can't get in there and do any harm. So I waited outside the door like this. So as soon as somebody came out, I went in. I said, excuse me, I need to go home. I don't need to be here. I need to go home. And the guy's like, <clears throat> well, let me see. Let me get your stuff, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, long story short, I got to go home. So I went home. Well, it, it didn't fix me. I wasn't any better than I was before I went to jail. I wasn't any better than I was before I went to mental institution. I wasn't any better. I was sick. I was very sick. And things really started spiraling out of control after this. And I got... um physically and mentally, emotionally and spiritually bankrupt very quickly at a young age. I was a mess. I was puking all the time. I couldn't walk. I couldn't control my body functions. I was living in my parents' basement. And uh, my mom and dad would say, what's wrong with you? Are you all right? Yeah, I got the flu. 
what am I going to say? I was so sick, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually sick, sick. And uh, my parents decided they had to go visit my grandparents in North Carolina. And I've been going there since I was a little, young, small girl. And I was so sick. I come rolling in at 2.30 when they were going to go in the night, 2.30 in the night, not the afternoon, the night. And uh, my brother and sister say to my parents, does she have to go? Or does she have to go in the car with us? And my mom says, yeah, just here, sit in the front. So they cram my ass in the front so that I don't contaminate my brother and sister in the back seat. And we take off for North Carolina and we get there. And uh, I was not able to eat. I was so sick. I was just so sick. And I wanted, I would have done anything to get well, anything. So we get down there, and they they kind of shuffle me off to my one grandma's house where there's nobody at. You know, they kind of hide me. They hid me. And uh, I went over to one of my uncle's house, who's a bootlegger. He bootlegged all my whole life. He had this little deal in the back of the house, and all night long the cars would drive around the back of the house and stop back there and get their alcohol. And um, I snuck back there one time so I could see it. And uh, so I went to my uncle's house, the bootlegger, who also had a uh, uh, serious uh, pill addiction. So I come strolling up, and uh, my uncle looked at me, and he says to my aunt, he says, I'll never forget this. He says, uh, Vivian, you need to go in there and uh, get Wanda a cup of those Valium. Get them right now. And I thought, God, how does he know I'm dying here? How did he know? How did he know I'd give $100 for that? <laughs> how did he know that? I didn't care. But I was like, oh, man, this is good. Somebody's paying attention here. And so I... uh Made it through that little vacation. I uh, uh I went down and uh to the street fair of the hillbillies and uh <laughs> with my poor little cousin in tow. I said, You're gonna take me <laughs> Anyway, I got a little bit better. I got a little bit physically right because I just got a hold of the right combination of things that helped me get through. And so uh we come back up to Michigan and uh that boyfriend, remember I told you about that boyfriend from Detroit, the one that stole the nurse's money at the mental institution? Well, in the meantime, I've I married him. I've married him. But we never really did live anywhere but my parents' basement. Anyway, while I was going to North Carolina, he went back to jail in Detroit. Okay, so we get back, and we had a $100 car. We had an Oldsmobile that cost $100, and I loved that car. That car was all I had. I had a $100 car. And if I needed to, I'd be sleeping in it. But I had a $100 car. When I came back, I didn't have a $100 car because he was in jail in Detroit, and the $100 car was in a bar in another town. Okay, I'm faced with a dilemma. And it's smart. I'm smart. I got good thinking skills. So I think to myself, Okay, let's see, Detroit, that's 150 miles. Uh, the bar, I think it's about 30 miles. I had no money. How am I going to get the keys to that $100 car? Well, I'm going to hitchhike to Detroit 
from Kalamazoo to get the keys to the $100 card because that's all I got in my life. So I take off and uh, I get down on the on-ramp of the freeway, Interstate 94, and my dad comes driving down there. This, uh, all I can say is this, at this point, this is a God thing that has happened to me at this point. My dad comes down there with my sister, and he says, Honey, please get in the car. I will get you some help. I will do whatever I need to do to get you some help. I said, I can't. i got to go. I don't know why I had to go, but I know today why I had to go. Because God was pushing me. God was pushing me to ultimately to this day. Okay, so I get out there and I'm hitchhiking to Detroit. And this lady and her son picked me up on their way to Jackson Penitentiary to see her other son. I thought that was kind of cool. So I get halfway to Detroit and they kick me out because they've got to go to Jackson. And uh, so I get right back out on that road again. I'm hitchhiking. Like I said, I was young. You have long hair. It's kind of cute. So I'm hitchhiking. And the truck flips over and pulls over the side of the road. And I think, oh, good, I got another ride. So I run up to that truck, and I, uh, guy jumps out, truck driver, cute guy, had a baseball cap on that had, uh, con air on it, and had marijuana leaves painted all over it. And I said, hi. <laughs> he said, you need a ride? Well, yeah, I do. So I get up in that truck, and we start down the road toward Detroit. And uh, he said, so, uh, you get high? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, I'm thinking I have fell into a, a gold mine. I have fell into something I never expected. This, is, this, this may turn out good. So, but, remi- but remember, I'm on my way to Detroit to the husband who's in jail with the key to the $100 car in the bar parking lot. So we get about, I don't know, 30 miles outside of Detroit, and we're talking and stuff, and you know, there's good, it's all good. And we get over to Detroit, and he goes, hey, <clears throat> would you like to go to California? And I say, yeah, I have nothing else going on. I'll go. Yeah, I'll go. So... <laughs> get in that truck with that guy and uh, go back to my mom and dad's house on the way out west and I pick up the suitcase and a little cardboard box with some of my junk in it. I got no money. I got very little marketable skills. I got no sense. I got alcoholism and drug addiction that is rampant in my body, my mind, my soul. But I'm doing good. I'm on my way to California with this cute guy. Okay? Well, we get rolling on out here. That guy ended up being the uh, father to my twin boys, and he lived in Visalia. He lived in Visalia. He brought me to Visalia. I came out here, and I thought, man, this is glorious. Oh, by the way, I was on probation in Michigan uh, for some other stuff, but I didn't see the point to stay in myself because it really wasn't helping me any at all. So I just thought I'd come on out here, you know. They didn't really use computers that much back then. And uh, so I did. I came out here. And 
I thought, I can do things different. I can be better. I can do, I can do what I'm supposed to do. Well, I found out very quickly, I couldn't. I couldn't. I found myself over here on uh, Houston and Ben Maddox at the little liquor store. It used to be on the corner, sitting out there in the parking lot waiting for some old guy to pull up that I thought would buy something for me. Because you people had the law of 21 years old. Where I came from, we drank at 18. It was a little inconvenient for me, but not so inconvenient that I couldn't uh, overcome. So, there I was. Then I discovered 4A Liquor down there on Mooney. And then I discovered some other California delights, and uh, I was back just as bad as I was ever. I, I was a mess. I was a mess. But I didn't see that. I kept thinking, there's really probably something wrong here, but I really don't know what it is, and to tell you the truth, I don't really care. Well, I ended up pregnant. And uh, you all know how that happens. And uh, I ended up pregnant. I really didn't know it at first because uh, I was living in fog. And the neighbor girl over at this apartment place I was living at, she says, you know, I think you might be pregnant. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? That's impossible. Well, guess what? It wasn't impossible. It was not impossible. So I was. The father to my children was an identical twin. And he had several sets of twin cousins. So when I delivered my child, I delivered two. We didn't really know that until as soon as they came out. Then we knew. And because of my disease, and my inability to take care of myself and the inability I had to live like a normal human being, I had been to the doctor a total of two times. So as soon as my water breaks, what am I concerned with? I need a buzz before I get to the hospital. Am I concerned with my children? Minimal. Well, here they come. They're seven weeks early. They're small. They're in an incubator. They're hauling them off to Valley Children's Hospital. I got nobody. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I think, oh, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I thought, well, there's no use in worrying about it right now. So anyway, they kept my sons up there for seven weeks at Valley Children's Hospital, and I went up there to see them as often as I could manage to get myself up there, about every other day, I think. And then they grew big enough. One weighed 3 pounds, 5 ounces, and one weighed 2 pounds, 13 ounces. Their low birth weight was not just a result of being premature. It was a, additionally a result of my medical, physical condition. I had to take responsibility for that in sobriety. I wanted to say, well, it's because, you know, they were born early. All twins that are born early and premature are low birth weight, and they all have those problems. It wasn't because their mother was an ass <laughs> and a sick person, but later on, as sobriety progressed, I was able to take responsibility for that and not hate myself for it. Anyway, they got ready to send these kids home with me. 
I was terrified. I was terrified. I thought, I'm going to die here. I don't know what I'm going to do. My mom lives in Michigan. My dad lives in Michigan. I got this asshole guy that was supposed to be their dad. And, you know, he's worried about reading High Times magazine. And I don't know what I'm going to do. What am I going to do? I got these kids. I don't know what I'm going to do. And not only that, one of them stops breathing. He turns purple. They say, stomp his foot. When he stops breathing, and he'll start breathing again. Okay. I was so stupid. So I take them home, and by the grace of God, by the grace of God, <laughs> these kids lived. Well, after they came along, I started really acutely feeling that there was something bad wrong with me. There was something not right, and I could not put my finger on it to save my life. So I started on my adventure. I started going to any church I could walk to. I started going to psychiatrists down at the mental health over on Mooney Boulevard when it was down there. I uh, started uh, reading self-help books. I started trying to take this stuff, this herbal crap that's supposed to make you better. I tried to not, oh, I know, I'm not going to eat refined sugar. That's what's wrong with me. Yeah, let's drink some 95% sugar alcohol, but we won't be eating that refined stuff because that's probably what's wrong. The impurities in the sugar is what's wrong with me. Oh, for God's sake. So anyway, and I started going to Al-Anon because, this was my thinking, I have to go to Al-Anon because that's probably what's wrong with me because all the people I hang out with have issues. And my dad had a drink problem when he was younger. And all the people I've ever really hang, been around or hung out with, or, they all have problems. So that's my problem. This is those people. That's my problem. I'm going to Al-Anon. So I go to Al-Anon, go to psychiatrist, go to church. I'm doing everything, eating the health food stuff. And my little baby are depending on me for their lives. <laughs> They're depending on me to feed them and keep them alive. And I'm like, I'm not getting any better here. I'm not getting any better. I don't know what those Elmont women are talking about, but this ain't working. I, the psychiatrist is not working. So, the old psychiatrist, he says, I can't help you because you can't get in here not loaded. And I thought, what the hell does that have to do with it? Can you not fix me? Aren't you a professional? Well, no, he wasn't. So, what got me into Alcoholics Anonymous was I was in an Al-Anon meeting at Pine Recovery, and at that time they had AA meetings in the next room, and uh, it was a candlelight meeting in the next room. I had finished this Al-Anon meeting that I got nothing out of, and so I thought, well, you know what, there's this cute guy in there in that AA meeting. <laughs> And it's a candlelight meeting, so I'm going in there. I'm going to go in there and see what's going on. So I go in there because it's a candlelight meeting. They really, you can't see that much, right? So I get in there, and this little girl, Teresa, red hair, I think she was 15 years old. She was telling her story. She was sharing the meeting. And it hit me. I get this one thing out. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I knew right then and there. I knew what was wrong with me. I was like, oh, my God. I know what's wrong with me. Okay, I'm going home now. I gotta go home. 
And the home was paid for by the California welfare system because I could not work. I was unemployable. And I lived on welfare. And I went to AA and lived on welfare. And I started getting a little better and a little better and a little better. And one day at a time, back to back, doing one load of laundry at a time, one step at a time, helping another alcoholic one at a time, one thing at a time, day after day after day, I started getting better. I didn't think my kids were going to die on me anymore. I, it, it, was a, it was nothing short of a miracle. It was a miracle. Alcoholics Anonymous became the way of life for me. I went to meetings several times a day, lots of days, because I lived on welfare, because so I couldn't work, and so I got to go to the AA meetings, right? I had to go to work. I had to go into AA, which is probably good, because that's about all I could do. <laughs> that's all I could do then. And back in those days, Alcoholics Anonymous was about the only thing going on for recovery, and I clung to it. I clung to it. And I knew that it was going to change my life, save my life ultimately. Frank Ross, I know some of you have heard him, he was in charge of Pine at that time. And uh, he took a motorhome with a bunch of people who got a Bakersfield to a convention. And I wormed my way into going. I was like, please, can I go? Please, can I go? He said, yeah, you can go. So we get in that motorhome. We're on our way to Bakersfield to this convention. And he says, well, you know, he says, uh, you know, about uh, 24 out of 25 of you are not going to make it. And I'm thinking, what? What are you saying? I'm not saying that. I'm just thinking it. Because I don't want nobody throwing me out. So I'm thinking, what in the hell is he talking about? 20? Only That means like, what, one? Uh, 25 people are going to make it and stay sober? How does that work? That kind of made me a little nervous. But the other side of that was, at that moment, at that very moment in that motorhome on my way to Bakersfield, I said to myself, God, I want you to please help me be that one person. Please help me be that one person. And to this day, he has. But... That's not to say I haven't had to do the footwork. I've done a lot of footwork. I stayed on welfare for 10 years. Almost 10 years I lived on welfare. Back in those days, when I asked them if I could go to school, they said, no, you may not go to school. If you can go to school, you can work. You'll receive no aid. Fine with me. I'm not going. So I kept going, and uh, I... uh, Ended up getting married in this program. Stayed married for uh, quite a long time. And we ended up getting divorced. And uh, he didn't make it. In fact, I married him a couple weeks ago. And uh, father of my kids married him last year. Because this disease killed them. It killed them. And I have buried many of my friends over the years because it has killed them. Because this disease is nothing short of deadly. This is a deadly disease. It will kill you. It will put you in a mental institution. It will wreck your brain. <laughs> I cannot say that strongly enough because that is the facts the way they are. 
And I did, even though I was in, uh, divorced and I had not lived with my uh, children's father, I can tell you I did not, did not want to bury those men because of alcoholism. But I had to, and I did what I had to do. After being on welfare for 10 years, I got started working again. I back into the workforce. I worked for a few jobs, one I hated. I absolutely hated it. I hated to get up every day. I hated to go to work. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. It was a crappy-ass job, and I hated it. But the landlord wanted that check every month, and those kids wanted food every day, and they needed clothes to wear to school, and I had to take them to the doctor, so I had to force my ass up out of bed and go to work to that stupid job that I hated. Well, as God takes care of me, he intervened in my life again. A series of events happened, was not pleasant, but the end result was wonderful. I got to go back to school. I got to go to college for the first time in my life. And I thought I would never get to go to college. I thought I was done. I thought you blew that back in the mental ward. You blew that many years ago, Wanda. You will not get to go to college. But I got to go to college. I got to go to U.S. I got to go to Fresno State. And I got to take a master's uh, course through Point Loma. And I got to do that because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Nothing else. Alcoholics Anonymous, what God had sent to me, I got to go to college. I graduated college. I graduated with honors. I am a teacher today. I get to, that's why I'm moving around like this all the time. That's what I do all day long. I get to try to help people. I get to try to help little kids improve their lives. I get to help those kids at risk, the ones that don't have any jackets, the ones that their parents uh, send them to school and no food. I get to try and help those little kids and help their parents every single day. And I don't have to force my ass out of bed now. I am happy to get up and go to work. And I am so thankful that God has seen fit to let me have that kind of a job and that kind of a life. But I would have nothing if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous. Nothing. Because where I was headed, and I suspect many of you have been to those same places that I was at, if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't be standing up here like this today. And I'm just so thankful for it. I'm so grateful for this program. It's in the book. We, I, if I can tell you nothing else, read this book and do what it says. It's just simple as that. Don't make it all complicated. Work the steps and just keep going. And when you screw up, because I screwed up lots of times, trust me, I did all kinds of crap in my surprises that I shouldn't, well, I'm not going to bring up right now. <laughs> but I have done many things that I did not drink, I did not use, and I kept putting one foot in front of the other, and I did not let anybody chase me out of a meeting. I did not let anything get between me and sobriety. And that is hard to do. I'm not going to say that it's not uh, um, difficult at times. It is difficult at times. But, by the grace of God, here I am. And as Bill said, we have the same uh, sobriety day 
April 11th is our sobriety day, and I'm going to ask I'm going to ask you to please not applaud. I am very uncomfortable with people applauding for my sobriety day. I don't please don't do that. But April 11th, I will be sober for 29 years. My sons are 30 years old at the end of this month, and you know what? They have never had a drink. They have never had to take drugs. They have never had to be in jail. They have never gone to a mental institution. And you know why? Because they grew up with the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in their life from being one years old. That's all they knew. That's all they knew was Alcoholics Anonymous and these principles. And with that, I will conclude. Thank <laughs> you.